Join me today for a special interview with Professor Craig Keener as we talk about our new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, I have really been looking forward to today. Gives me an opportunity to talk with a dear friend, Professor Craig Keener, professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, one of the world's most respected New Testament scholars. I constantly use his volumes, so many famous books he's written, award-winning books, commentaries running to many thousands of pages in the Book of Acts and other popular studies. He loves the Lord and he loves God's church and he loves the Word. And together, we've written a book called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. Now, the subtitle was more our theme. The title was what the publisher came up with. But we're going to talk about the book today. It is being released to the general public next week, March 19th. But you can order it from our website now together with the interview of today. So, Available, not afraid of the Antichrist. And Craig, great to have you on the air. How you doing today, man? Hey, I'm doing I'm doing all the better since I get to talk to you. Wonderful. Now we're we're normally pretty late late night people, but I, I hope I hope this is not too early in the day for the interview. Uh, hey, the time change messed me up, but but I'm 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 just happy to be to be with you anytime, Michael. Wonderful. So, so Craig, let's, let's talk about origins. You came to faith, you had been an atheist, and you came to faith as a teenager, and you didn't have Bible background before that. So when did you first begin to hear of this idea that Jesus would return with a secret rapture, take his people out, and then there'd be seven years of tribulation, great tribulation, and then Jesus would return? When did you first come to hear this and believe it? Well... I mean, when I was when I was young Christian, I figured I better believe what they taught me because they had been Christians for a while, and I really didn't know anything. And so uh, I just kind of accepted that along with all the other stuff that the church that I joined was teaching. But it bothered me because, you know, I dutifully memorized the Scripture references backing up all the different doctrines, but as I read the Scriptures for that in context, they actually didn't say that. So... You know, I I figured, well, they know better than I do. But eventually, of course, it became a problem because I just never did find any scriptures that actually supported that doctrine. Right, so you were saved a few years when you then uh, stopped believing that specifically, would you say? Yeah, I, th- I think so. It was, um, somebody told me they had a dream in which the Church was going through the Tribulation, and they said they hoped, I didn't think they were a heretic, and I said, well, no, I, come to think of it, I mean, I really can't think of any scripture that says that we won't, uh, but I wouldn't want to base it just on a dream. But as I, as I went back through the scriptures myself and actually tried to see what they said, I, I realized it didn't say that. And then 
So I, I changed my position, and then a, the pastor, the pastor was, he held the pre-tribulational view, but he was, he was friendly. He really didn't care. You know, he might think you were wrong, but it wasn't a divisive issue for him. But the guest evangelist, who was teaching on end-time prophecy, he was so committed to this, he took the entire afternoon, uh, one Sunday, to, to set me down and try to run me through all the scriptures that supported the pre-tribulational rapture. And one by one, he went through these verses. One by one, I said, let's look at the context. And it refuted everything he was saying. And then finally, exasperated, he was very patient with me, <laughs> but exasperated, <laughs> he finally said, look, all men of God are pre-trib. Jim Baker's pre-trib, Jimmy Swaggart's pre-trib. Who do you think you are? You've only been a Christian for a couple of years. You know, I had been beaten for my faith on the streets and, and, and so on for, for witnessing for Christ, but he was right. I'd only been a Christian a couple of years, and so I said, you're right. I need to believe what you're telling me. Even though I couldn't see it in Scripture, until one day I heard another pastor say that up until 1830, nobody had believed in this doctrine. And he named all sorts of famous people, men and women of God in church history, uh, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, so on, Augustine. None of them believed this. And so that gave me the courage to say, okay, I'm going to go back, search the Scriptures for myself. And that was a turning point in my life, not simply because of this doctrine, but because I decided from then on, I'm not just going to believe what people tell me the Bible says, I'm going to search the Scriptures for myself and see what the Bible actually says. And, and, and Craig, when you were searching the Scriptures, you were reading the Bible a, a lot in those days. Uh, let, let our listeners and viewers know what your, your Bible reading habits were at that time. <laughs> well, this, this doesn't apply to all of my early Christian life, yeah. but there were times, like seven weeks in a row, where, uh, and then other times in addition to that, where I'd read through the New Testament once a week, or I'd read through the Bible once a month, uh, another, another time. So, you know, if you read 40 chapters of the Bible a day, you can get through a lot. Yeah. And that was helpful to me. I mean, I came from a non-Christian background, so I had a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, and, and you know what's so interesting? And we each tell our stories, uh, the book Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. Um, and, and we were approached to do this by our friend Jane Campbell, a wonderful editor at Chosen Books, because we've never made this a divisive subject. And we work together with pre-tribulation brothers and sisters who love the Lord and, and whom we honor. But it's so interesting that, that we had a real parallel uh, experience. Uh, I came to faith in a pre-trib church, and I believed because that's, I mean, I got saved there and they knew better than I did. And and. They were teaching me the word and loved the Lord. And these were important doctrines to them. So that's how I read scripture. And I had a streak where for a six month period, I was memorizing 20 verses a day without missing a day. And then in the first couple of years, read through the Bible cover to cover about five times. And a friend of mine came and said, Mike, I don't understand like the rapture, second coming, the differences. And I'm trying to figure that out. And he asked me some questions about Matthew 24. And I thought, you know, I don't really know. I guess the guys in the church just know it better because I, 
I've been reading the Bible day and night and don't really see it. So I bought all the books, <laughs> J, you know, J. Dwight Pentecost book, Things to Come and John Wolver's volume, <laughs> W.E. Blackstone, Clarence Larkin. And, the, and it's like, now I mastered it. The seventh trumpet here was different than the last trumpet here. And, and I got really dogmatic and argued it. And then the same deal. Someone shows me this book that this wasn't taught before like 1830. And then it hit me, wait a second. I don't know whether it's true or not. But I didn't get this reading the Bible on my own. I got this yeah. by somebody telling me that scheme. So obviously we're respectful of those that differ with us. But have you ever met someone who just kind of reading the Bible in isolation came up with this whole pre-trib understanding and system? No, ne never reading the Bible on their own. That's, that's part of the issue. When I, when I wanted to come to my final decision years ago, I said, okay, I'm going to try to read this as if I hadn't been taught either way. If I hadn't been taught either way, would I distinguish the rapture from the second coming? Or would I assume that they were the same event? And once I did that, oh, it was clear, and it was actually simple, because you didn't have to divide verses in the middle. For example, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. I mean, yeah, where are you going to hold a tribulation if that's at the beginning? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, there's a reason, I think, why places where it hasn't been taught, people don't believe it. Yeah, so again, there's a lot that we learn through reading Scripture, and then other believers, gifted teachers, church history, enlighten us, give us further insight. But the question is, would you have ever come up with this on your own? One of the key things for me, Craig, was looking at the New Testament vocabulary, and, and even yeah. though you're the New Testament scholar, that part of the, of the book, uh, you encouraged me to do, the New Testament vocabulary. So all the verses that allegedly refer to a rapture, which is a secret hidden event, right? We're all just, you know, taken out, uh, all speak of his arrival, a public appearing. Uh, you know, what can you tell us about the meaning of parousia, which speaks of a coming arrival? Was that kind of like a big event, the, the emperor's arrival or something in the ancient world? Parousia has a wide range of meaning. It can even mean just presence, although obviously that wouldn't fit these contexts. Right. But yeah, when it was an important person, like a king or a dignitary or something like that, <clears throat> this was a this was a, a big event, and people from the city would actually go out to meet the person, and as part of honoring them, would form their escort on the way into the city. Now, you know, you can't press too much and say, well, it always has to mean exactly the same thing in every context. But it is interesting that in First Thessalonians, uh, it does use that same word for meeting, the kind of meeting you would have with an official dignitary, alongside parousia. And uh, that would seem to imply that when the Lord comes back, we meet him on his way down. So, you know, if you don't want to read too much into that, at least you can't say that it has to work the other way, that, that, you know, our meeting him in the air means we're on our way up to heaven. It can really mean we're on our way to meet him on his way down to rule the earth. And, and would that tie in with some of the Jewish wedding customs or perhaps the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25? Is that a similar kind of picture? Well, Matthew 25 does, does speak of a meeting of that, of that kind. And, that's actually how the word apontesis for meeting is used everywhere else in the New Testament, uh, where 
uh, you go out to meet and form the, the escort. Right. So in other words, someone has to turn around. Either the Lord comes from heaven, <laughs> secretly catches us up, turns around and goes to heaven, or uh, he comes down from heaven, we're caught up to meet him and turn around as his escort and descend to earth with him. All right, friends, we're going to unpack this some more. Uh, we're going to talk about this practically, why this matters. Uh, some poignant stories from what happened in China when communism rose and believers were not adequately prepared or taught. The new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Professor Craig Keener and yours truly. So we'll unpack this more. Uh, we'll open things up. Maybe we'll take some calls, 866-348-784. Be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, one of the uh, the great miracles that we've experienced writing, Craig, is that you and I wrote a book together and combined it's only like 230 pages as opposed to 2,000 pages. That's kind of a miracle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh Okay. We, we alternate. Sometimes we're, we're both speaking with one voice. Otherwise, we're alternating chapters and things like that. But as, as you begin to lay things out at the beginning of the book, uh, you talk about suffering church in, in Africa, some places where believers were just slaughtered. Why do you start there? Why do you bring those things up? It's possible to be pre-tribulational and believe that persecution is a real thing. I mean, I, Obviously, a lot of pre-tribulationalists believe that. But there are people who will say things like, well, I'm just glad that we're going to get out of here before it gets bad. And it's important on a practical level to realize that things have gotten bad for Christians throughout history. Jesus says there's nothing more they can do to you than to kill your body. Well, they've been doing that for a long time. And so we, as Christians, I mean, the moment we become Christians, Jesus says, if you really want to be my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. So the moment we, we commit our lives to Christ, our lives in this world are forfeit, because we have committed to a destiny with Christ, sharing the cross, so that we recognize that we have eternal life. We're ready to give up our lives in this life, if needed. And I think it's important to call the Church back to that. Now, again, the pre-tribulationalists can agree with us on that, but I think it's important to just see the reality of what's what's happening around the world. First John says, you've heard that an Antichrist is coming, even now there are many Antichrists. Well, you've heard that persecution's coming, even now there's lots of persecution. So it's important to be reminded we don't just automatically get out of it. Yeah. Now, of, of course, some would say, well, the tribulation is uniquely the wrath of God and we're not appointed to wrath. And, and of course, you deal with 
with those verses in the book or what does it mean to be not appointed to wrath, et cetera. We can come back to that tomorrow. I'm going to discuss some of the major pre-trib arguments and, and take those up. But when you mention some believers, some pre-trib believers having this view that we'll be out of here before it's really bad, they don't always distinguish some of them. They don't always distinguish between the wrath of God and just hard times. So you tell a story about communist China uh, I had I had heard it myself. I wanted to research it more. You verify it. What happened to the believers in communist China? W- why were they upset after they were able to talk to the missionaries again after years of persecution? Yeah, now I can't I can't speak for all of China, but I was right. at the headquarters of a major uh, missions organization in the U.S. when a word came. From China, you know, it had been opened up again to the missionaries after like 40 years. Uh, maybe not as missionaries per se, but you know, they, people were allowed to go in from the outside. And the, some of the missionaries went back to places where um, their their mission had had started churches. And the, the local Christians said, "You know, go away. We we can do this on our own without you. You you told us." We will be raptured before the Great Tribulation, and you all disappeared. We thought you had been raptured, and we left to go through the Tribulation ourselves. And then, of course, many of them had given their lives, had been through prison, and and so forth. Right, so if we think about it, if people are burned alive for the Gospel, or tortured to death for the Gospel— starved to death for the gospel, or buried alive for the gospel. It's not like the Antichrist is going to do that any worse or any more severely, and these things are being experienced. But through the book, and we we end the book, both of us, with chapters of encouragement, why is it so important to have a mentality of overcoming as opposed to a mentality of escapism? It's actually a major theme in the book of Revelation. All seven churches have different tests that they have to face. Well, two of them are very similar, but for the most part, they, you know, you have churches that are tempted with being, a, well, some of them are a dead church. It's the church in Sardis. You have uh, the church in Laodicea that they, they need to uh, open the door to Jesus and stop being, uh, thinking themselves self-sufficient. You have the church Smyrna that needs to be faithful to death. You have churches facing different things, the church that lost its first love, Ephesus, facing different things, but each of them is called to overcome. So we don't get to look at somebody else's trials and say, oh, I'd rather have that trial than the one I've got. We don't get to look at somebody else's trial and say, oh, I never could go through that. I mean, we don't get to pick our trials, but all of us are called to overcome. And that's actually where Revelation moves. I mean, sometimes we get fixated on the details of the horrors they go through the book, uh, horrors that, the kind of horrors we see at different times and places in our world, with tsunamis and earthquakes and persecution and so on, but at the same time, the the, the book ultimately climaxes in a vision of, of hope and a promise to those who overcome that we will inherit these things in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be his children. He's, he's our Father, and 
just a, a promise of eternal blessing. There's a contrast in Revelation between Babylon, the city of this age, and the New Jerusalem, the, the promised age to come for those who are believers. And that contrast between these two cities is, is a beautiful contrast. Uh, one is portrayed as a prostitute, one is portrayed as a bride. And those who are willing in faith to wait to be the bride will keep ourselves pure, and we won't live for the values of this age. We won't live for the values of you know, people who, who don't live for the age to come, who think that all we can get is in this life. We'll live for the values of the promise of the coming age, because we really believe it. Mm. Yeah, and, and it is a theme through Revelation. Sometimes we're so intimidated by the visions and the symbolism and the vials and wrath and trumpet and seals and that we miss the larger message of the book, which is a message of hope and, and overcoming. Craig, what about these verses in Matthew 24? As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Some of us said, look, it looks like normal life is going on. And that can't be the description of the tribulation or great tribulation. This is normal life going on. And suddenly the believers are raptured out. And, and then later there's the public second coming at the end of time of calamity of, of, of evil. But what's being described here seems like just normal life. And, and then suddenly Jesus returns, takes people out. How can this be referring to life during the tribulation? They're eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. It just seems like normal life's going on. Whereas we wouldn't think that the tribulation, a great tribulation, is a description of, of normal life. Well, for some people, I mean, even in the book of Revelation, you have, uh, you know, the people celebrating and giving gifts over the, the witnesses who've been killed. So, I mean, you, you do have this picture of the world going on. Uh, but also, I think what's most important in those texts is that they talk about Jesus coming back at the end, and it talks about uh, one person being taken and the other person being left. And in Luke, in Luke 17, where it talks about one person being taken and the other being left, the disciples specifically ask, where, Lord, where are they taken? And Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, that's where the vultures will be gathered. It's an image of judgment. Mm. And uh, also in Matthew 24, I mean, it's also parallel to to those who were taken in the flood, that is, taken in judgment. So, in other words, people will be unprepared for the final judgment. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. But everywhere in the New Testament, where there's any context that tells you what it means by the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, it has to do with his sudden coming in judgment, and it's his, his second coming. It's his coming to judge the world. It's not... Uh, it's not the beginning of the tribulation. Got it. And and the verse, wherever the, the corpses are, the carcasses are, there the vultures will be. What do you understand that to mean? You said it's a picture of judgment, but how would you interpret that verse? I'd see it pretty much like what you have in uh, Revelation 19, with the, uh, well, you've got the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb for the righteous at that time, and then you have the great supper of God for the vultures. <laughs> Um, mm. You also have it in Ezekiel, 
and actually a number of places in the Old Testament and even in Greek and Roman literature, when they would describe battle scenes, they would often describe the vultures coming and feasting on the carcasses of those who've been slain. So it's definitely an image of judgment. It wouldn't quite sound like we're being caught up to feast with Jesus in heaven. I don't think there are going to be any carcasses and vultures there. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. So friends, uh, we're going to, we're going to look in a little bit more depth with professor Craig Keener at second Thessalonians chapters one and two. And I'll revisit some of this tomorrow, as well as I respond to some of your posts and questions. Our new book, not afraid of the, Antichrist, while we don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, you'll find it's not divisive, but rather it's edifying, it's going through the Word, and above all, it's giving us hope and courage that in Jesus, we are more than conquerors, no matter what comes our way. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Is it true that through church history, the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture was not taught until within the last 200 years, maybe 160, 70 years, that it was unknown in the early church, that it was unknown through church history, Is that really so? I can think of a better person to ask than the co-author of my latest book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, Professor Craig Keener. Uh, And Craig, I mean it when I say I'm constantly using your commentaries. Uh, God's really gifted you uh, to study, to learn, to to present your research in to, to so many. So we have been blessed and edified by your material. And, and I mean that not just as a friend, but as someone who's uh, benefited so much from your work and, and the gift that God's given you. So you are, you can write on a popular level and teach and preach on a popular level, but there's a massive amount of information that's always in your brain as you're doing this. Is it inaccurate to say that this is a new doctrine that the pre-tribulation rapture was not taught or believed in the early church or through church history until somewhere in the 1800s? Yeah, that's, that's correct. And what about the idea that there would be a premillennial return of Jesus, that Jesus would return and set up a thousand year kingdom on the earth? Was that held through church history? Uh, Actually, views in church history in the millennium vary quite a bit. I I actually was just reading uh, some of the, um, well, Papias was very early in the second century, and uh, excerpts or quotes of Papias, I was just reading some of those this morning, Uh, well, morning for me, and I'm I'm a night person, but Papias clearly believed in, in the future thousand years, some later Church fathers made fun of him for that. Uh, Irenaeus did. Justin Martyr apparently did. So in the second century, the belief that there was a future thousand years was pretty common. It, it, we we read from the sources it wasn't the only view then, but it was the apparently the prevailing view. By the time you get to well, when Constantine is emperor, premillennialists 
sector definitely on the out. In fact, uh, Eusebius, who's a church historian writing in the in the 300s, complains about premillennialists. He says, you know, unlike other heretics, we were uh, the the premillennialists were able to be talked out of their error. Well, that's kind of strong, but yeah, views have have varied through church history. So. Um, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, they were all amillennial, that is, they believed we're in the millennium now, it's symbolic. And the earliest church fathers were premillennial. And then in the in the 1800s in the U.S., you know, we read about these great revivals. We're actually going back to 1700s. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, who led half a million people to Christ in the, in the mid-1800s and so on, they tended to be post-millennial. That is, they believed that we would establish God's kingdom on earth and and set up the throne and then Jesus would come back. A very optimistic view. I, I don't... It, I actually think it's the weakest of the views, even though it's making a comeback today. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there have been different views in the millennium. No, but regarding the tribulation, no, that's, that's pretty recent. Yeah, and, and what's interesting also... so. For what we can tell, the disciples of the apostles and their disciples believed in a pre-millennial return of Jesus, but not pre-tribulational. So they saw that God had given literal promises to Israel that were going to be referred, uh, that were going to be fulfilled. Uh, you've written a, a massive commentary in the book of Acts, unprecedented amount of research. What did it come to if you printed out like 6,000 pages or, or something? Acts 1-6, an important passage where the disciples asked Jesus, they've been with him 40 days after his resurrection, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And John Calvin says that that question has more errors in it than it has words, and yet Jesus doesn't (laughs) rebuke them for it. He doesn't say, what a stupid question. Uh, He basically says, great question, just not for you to focus on. You need to focus on the Great Commission. Were they asking a valid question about God restoring the kingdom to Israel? Did God make promises to Israel that he's still going to keep? Yeah, God God did make promises, and when the disciples ask the question, they're asking something that's, I mean, it's the obvious question in the context. Back in verse 3, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. Verses 4 and 5, he's talking about the Spirit. You read the Old Testament prophets, um, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Joel 2 in the translation, um, Isaiah, a number of passages, 44, and so on talk about the time when God pours out His Spirit is also the time when God restores His people and fulfills His promises. Now, I believe that, well, I'm a Gentile believer, I believe that the Gentiles who follow the Messiah are grafted into, salvifically, that heritage, but but also I believe, you know, Romans 11 is pretty clear, but anyway, just sticking with Acts. Jesus doesn't say, no, that's a bad question. It's an obvious question. He says, instead, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is placed under his own authority. But here's the issue. You're going to receive power so you can be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that sets the, the tone for the rest of Acts. Yeah, and then, of course, in Acts 3... Peter says that yes. Jesus must remain in heaven in the time for the restitution of all things spoken of by the prophets. So he says what the prophets 
spoke of will literally come to pass. So you and I hold to a, a premillennial return of Jesus where we, we don't divide over that, obviously. Uh, so we do believe that there are future promises to Israel that will be fulfilled. That's not what's being denied. It's a matter of kind of splitting things. And, and, and I want to get to Second Thessalonians, but let's just unpack something about dispensational theology that makes a radical separation between the church and Israel. Why? On the one hand, we know God made promises to Israel he's going to keep, and we know that saved Israel and the saved nations constitute the ecclesia, the, the church. But why do you have a problem with this, the, the strict separation that dispensationalists make between Israel and the church? Yeah. Um, speaking of strict separations, I, I do want to also make a distinction between the original dispensationalism of like the 1830s right. and progressive dispensationalism that some of our friends hold, that there, there is a difference. But speaking of the original dispensationalism, uh, John Nelson Darby, he was reacting against legalism in the Church. He said, no, we have to find some way to separate uh, law from gospel that, that works better. So he separated it chronologically, said that, well, everything before a certain point, that's for Israel. Uh, now we're in the Church age, but God is going to deal with Israel again during the Great Tribulation and then during the Millennium. And since he said God can't deal with the Church and Israel at the same time, which I don't think somebody after 1948 would have said that, but uh, in 1830s he said that since God can't deal with Israel and the Church at the same time, well then God's going to have to rapture out the Church before the Tribulation. That was based not in an exegesis of passages about a pre-tribulational rapture of, of any sort. It was based on his theological premise that God doesn't deal with the Church and with Israel at the same time. So if there's going to be a tribulation for Israel, and he said in the last seven years, the Church won't be here. And, and didn't they even divide up, like, the Gospels? For example, the Sermon on the Mount was considered to be the Constitution for Israel's millennial kingdom and not for the church today. And so much of the New Testament wasn't for the church today. The, the earliest dispensationalists, wasn't that their theology? Yeah, it's, there's a, I think it's a joke that's sometimes told about, about them, that um, a kid got into a fight at school and, and his mom said, hey, how'd you get that black eye? And it comes down to, you know, he didn't start the fight, but he hit back. And his mom said, well, you shouldn't hit back. And don't you know what Jesus said about turning the other cheek? And the, and the boy said, oh, Ma, that's only for the Jews. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, Acts was considered a transitional era in which things like the gift of the Spirit were being phased out, and so that's why the early dispensationalists said those things can't be for today. So if you're holding a strict dispensational view in the early sense, again, progressive dispensationalists are more open on these things, but, you know, that was... That was why they said the gifts of the Spirit don't happen today and and things like that that really don't fit the reality that we see in today's world and in the Scriptures. Yeah, and it's so interesting that so many dispensations today are charismatic, whereas the earliest ones would have been anti-charismatic. All right, Second right. Thessalonians 1 and 2. Let, let's maybe unpack the first chapter before the break and come back to the second chapter on the other side of the break. This, to me, is a very strong passage in terms of a post-tribulational passage. Uh, you feel the same way. You open that up when you're dealing with some of the passages that clearly point to 
post-tribulational view. So explain to our listeners why Second Thessalonians 1 points to a post-tribulational coming as opposed to a pre-tribulational coming. Let me read some verses from this. Uh, I'll read these from the New American Standard. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you'll be considered worthy of God's kingdom, for which indeed you're suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. And it's the same uh, cognate word in Greek as tribulation, but of course tribulation is a wide subject. To give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. So we receive relief from tribulation. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, is that at the beginning of the tribulation? He goes on to say, at that time he's going to deal out retribution to those who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction at the time when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. So the time when when uh, the saints are glorified and he's glorified in us, we get our, our uh, glorified bodies, the time that we receive rest from, from suffering is also the same time that he comes to bring eternal destruction for the wicked. Right, and, you know, Craig, when when I was studying this, looking at it many years ago, some some dispensationalist authors said, yeah, well, that's what Paul was saying, but just like the Old Testament authors didn't see there was a distinction between the first and second coming, Paul didn't get it that there was a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. And I, I, thought, I thought Paul was the one that taught that. Yeah, one of those clear verses. We'll look at 2 Thessalonians 2, we come back. The new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Craig Keener and yours truly. Be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I, I, uh, I apologize to some folks that have been holding on the line for a while. Uh, really, I, I want to devote every minute I can with Professor Keener, but... I promise I plan to be taking lots of calls next week, have pre-trib call-in days where folks can share their views and differ. So if I don't get your call before the show is out, my apologies. So, uh, Craig, we go to Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, and that, too, would seem to point very clearly to a post-tribulational rapture. So I, I want you to go through it, and then, then I'll, I'll probe with a few questions that follow. Sure. 2 Thessalonians 2 opens up by talking about Jesus' return. Some people apparently think that he's already come back. Um, so so Paul, Paul says, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. Now, in Greek, there's all sorts of exceptions in Greek grammar, so I don't push, you know, I don't load everything onto the grammar here, but Normally, in Greek, the way you would take this is that the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering to him are referring to the same event. This is the parousia and our gathering together to Jesus. And he says, don't worry that that has already happened. 
that the day of the Lord has already come. So he's identifying these with the day of the Lord. He says in chapter 2 and verse 3, Don't let anybody trick you, for it will not come until these two things happen first. The apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, taking his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. Now, he clearly says that, that his coming and our gathering to him will not come until these things happen first. Now, if these things are, are with, you know, if we regard these things as the Great Tribulation, then it looks like that has to happen before we're gathered to him. I mean, it, it seems pretty explicit. So, I mean, the only question would be whether this is the Great Tribulation or not, but pre-tribulationists almost always say it is. Right, and, you know, there are some who try to argue that the Greek word apostasia, you could find Old English translations, and it refers to like a, not just a falling away or rebellion, but a, a taking away, and it's a secret reference to the rapture. Of course, every every lexicon references apostasy as falling away, rebellion, apostasy. But uh, correct me if my reasoning is wrong here. Even if someone was trying to argue that he's saying the rapture has to come first, and, and again, it's the worst word to use if that was his point. <laughs> it's impossible. The, right, he, he then next says that the man of sin is going to be revealed. So he's telling us we're going to see the Antichrist, right? I mean, no matter how you try to get away from the meaning of apostasia, which clearly is rebellion apostasy, he's saying that why is he telling the man of sin is going to be revealed if you're going to be out of here before it happens? Is my logic wrong there? Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's saying you, you're not going to see Jesus coming back until this happens. And so don't think it's already happened. Don't think that the, the Lord's already come back. Because, yeah, you haven't seen the man of lawlessness yet. And, right. It, uh, enthroning himself on God's feet. And, and, and then when it talks about the man of sin, this Antichrist being revealed, so everybody's going to see him, then, uh, and, and there's going to be a, it's very public, then Jesus is going to destroy him with his coming and his revealing. And that's the event yep. we're waiting for, right? Yep. And it's the same word, parousia, that, at the end of the passage that is at the beginning of the passage. So, you know, unless he's, uh, you might want to talk about Uncle Fred. Maybe you'll do that tomorrow. But unless he's changing his uh, title and speaking of two different things in exactly the same wording, which would be very confusing to his first audience. Right. He's got to yeah, be so, talking about the same thing. Right. So if, if I was trying to explain to people, okay, so here's what's going to happen. We're waiting for the second coming, and we're going to be taken up, uh, caught up to meet Jesus, and it's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and then there's the second coming when we come with Jesus. You'd say, well, I thought you said the second coming was seven years earlier. It gets a little confusing. And that's why in the book I talk about going to pick up Uncle Fred at the airport. There's two different times you pick him up and two different descriptions of Uncle Fred. It's like, I thought it was Uncle Fred. Well, the same way, the only way we can make this work is we have to use different terms, rapture versus second coming. But the thing we're looking forward to is the coming. We're longing for his appearing, right? When he reveals himself, that's that's our great hope. And it's a pretty mind-boggling thing. I mean, I don't think Hollywood's ever even tried to do this. But we'll be caught up to him. The dead in Christ will be resurrected, and living believers will be caught up to him 
when he appears. I mean, that's that's the way it's going to The whole world's going to see him, and we're going to be caught up together with him. That's going to be pretty intense. Yep. Yeah, it's no, no secret uh, disappearance of believers. There's no mention of that in the New Testament. It's, it's a very visible, yeah, public appearing. And, and what about the issue of trumpets? It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet will be changed and the, the dead Messiah will rise do you think there are going to be any trumpets after the last trump, or do you think last means last? Well, I think it's just like the, Jesus speaks of the resurrection of the last day, or uh, on the premillennial reading, Revelation 20 speaks of the first resurrection at the end of the tribulation. I think last trumpet also means, means last. I think that Paul knows of Jesus' teaching, that, as we have it in, in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, and uh, Paul, uh, I mean, Paul evokes it. He alludes to it a lot in First Thessalonians four and five, and Second Thessalonians two. The, the language is is very similar, including you know us being gathered and so on. When he speaks of the the trumpet, uh, and then in First Corinthians fifteen, at the resurrection, when the last enemy, death, the last enemy isn't the Antichrist, the last enemy of death, when that last enemy is defeated, that's at the time of the last trumpet. He's referring back to uh, Jesus speaking of the, the trumpet where he's going to gather together his chosen ones after the days of that tribulation, Matthew 24, 29 to 31. It's very explicit there. Yeah, and and when it says, you know, he comes with the sound of a trumpet in, in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, it's obviously all the same thing he's talking about, the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our God, if we point to that in Revelation 11, the seventh of seven trumpets. And I remember having to teach that the last trumpet was different, <laughs> that there were trumpets after the last <laughs> trumpet, and that there were trumpets after the seventh trumpet, at, you know, the seventh of seven. And like you say, he's going to raise us up at the last day, but the last day is followed by seven years. A, a lot of things it get much, much more complicated. And then the whole idea of him coming as a thief in the night First Thessalonians 5 speaks to that. Should he be coming as a thief in the night for us? Well, yeah, exactly. First Thessalonians, you know, he's speaking of the day of the Lord, just like in Second Thessalonians, he says the day of the Lord won't come until the man of lawlessness is revealed first. But in First Thessalonians, he says the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night, but you are not in darkness that you should be overtaken as by a thief. Rather, it's the wicked who will be overtaken as a thief and he describes their fate not as seven years of tribulation, but as sudden destruction. So echoing very much what you have in Matthew 24, Matthew 24 speaks of one parousia, which is after after the tribulation. That's the context in which he speaks of coming like a thief in the night. So when people say, ah, if he, if he doesn't come before the tribulation, we can count down the days. So, you know, he, it won't be... Uh, an imminent coming. It won't be unexpected. But that's not what the text says. I mean, these texts about the thief in the night, the thief in, he'll come like a thief in the night, the heavens will pass away with great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, Second Peter 3.10. There's just no way you can make those passages be talking about the beginning of the tribulation. They're talking about Jesus coming at the end to rule. 
Yeah, and and even as you mentioned in the book, the whole the whole idea of of uh, counting the days. First, it's presupposing that we'll know exactly. Oh, tribulation started today, or great tribulation started today. And you mentioned Jesus saying that for the sake of the elect, those days would be shortened. That was it referring to yeah. destruction of Jerusalem in seventy years. Or referring to the end of the age. I mean, that can be debated, but. Yeah, you know, the idea that we're going to be able to figure out anything with like, okay, we got like 11 minutes and 14 seconds left in, in light of how God unfolds things through history, that's, that's a, little, a little presumptuous. But again, our heart, friends, in writing the book was not to bash other views or respectful of other views. We, Craig and I work with pre-tribulational scholars, pre-tribulational believers, pastors. We have all of our believing lives. You know, Craig, what's funny, I've worked with some guys 25 years or more. And I don't even know what they believe about it because in all of our years working side by side, it's never really come up. So, so we can't, there's no reason to divide over this, but uh, folks should look afresh at the scriptures. Craig, we've got a minute. What are you hoping readers will get out of our book? Not afraid of the antichrist. Well, I mean, one thing is you can read the Bible for yourself. It gets a lot more simple when you take out all the stuff of the prophecy teachers yeah. But for another thing, to focus our hope on what our hope really is, our hope is not getting out of suffering in this life. Our hope is not getting out of, you know, the last seven or three and a half years of this age that believers in the 40 generations or so before us have had to go through, um, even if it's even if it's more intense globally. Uh, our hope is the appearing, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Face to face. That's what we're looking forward to. That is going to be a day. All right. Great talking to you, Craig. Love and appreciate you. Love you, brother.